You are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast about writing specifically today. Percival Everett's writing as we get into The Fix. It's another story from Damned If I Do. I just finished reading Telephone by Percival Everett, and that is a tremendous novel. If you have not read any of his novels, I suggest starting with Erasure and moving from there. But I also recently read Cutting Lisa, and I'm kind of considering covering Cutting Lisa on the podcast because it's a shorter novel. But he has so many short stories that I'd like to cover. And there are other short stories of his that I haven't read yet. So I am deep diving into Percival Everett lately as much as I can because it's harder to get some of his stuff. And by that, I mean I'm really cheap and I don't want to pay the high prices for some of it. But anyway, before I get into the short story, we know we have to have our ramble session. So recently on Twitter, there has been the discussion of Goodreads. Uh, my friend Zev Good, who I've covered in the podcast, was talking about trolls and whatnot. And I've encountered trolls on Goodreads because I gave someone a five-star rating. So they clicked on my profile and decided to give three different people gave me one-star reviews on Mount Venom, which didn't really hurt me. But it just goes to show that Goodreads is bullshit, okay? And for a book that hasn't even come out yet, yeah, no one should be able to rate it. That's number one. But number two, there should be qualifiers for rating books. I mean, this isn't like a screwdriver. Rating books should not be like Yelp reviews, you know? We're talking about literature here. And there's good and bad literature, of course, but as I've said so many times, reviews are a reflection of the reader, not the writer. So if someone gives you a one-star review, it probably means that they gave you about one star worth of effort into reading it. And a lot of people would disagree, and I don't give a fuck. Fuck you. But... There are people who say that reviews are not for the writer, they're for the reader. But what about the the people who get on Goodreads or Amazon and they rate and they give critique for the writer as if the writer is going to go back and change something based on their review? Realistically, reviews are meaningless. And Demise of the Trinity has about 18 ratings on Amazon, which isn't bad, but it's more than all my other books. And quite frankly, it hasn't gotten me any more sales. I think I've had one person say, oh, I saw the reviews and I had to buy it. Or someone said, I saw that someone complained about the violence and I had to buy it. Granted, this is my book. I know this book better than anyone. I don't think it's of just a big gore fest. It wasn't written like that. This is a book that is very personal 
It is an allegory for my relationship with God, me trying to figure out God, me trying to work through depression and feeling suicidal. This is a very personal book. But I wrote it with a sense of maybe someone out there will read this with a modicum of intelligence, you know. But at the same time, you have to write something entertaining, which I hope I've done. But a lot of people complained, well, a lot of people, maybe two or three people complained about the structure of the novel. And I don't really give a shit about that because I didn't write it for them. I wrote it for me. And I don't write things catering to anyone but me. I don't even have um, a reader that I write for. You know, Stephen King says, I'm chewing on a map. Stephen King writes for his wife. I don't write for my wife. I write for me. I spent nine years writing Demise of the Trinity for me. What kind of book I wanted to read. What kind of book I wanted to write. Okay? So, reviews are meaningless. And if a bunch of people want to give you one-star ratings... Don't let it bother you. They're probably stupid, okay? I don't see anyone with a PhD in anything wasting their time getting on Goodreads and giving a bunch of one-stars to someone because they said they didn't like chocolate, you know? So take solace in the fact that the people who are reviewing your books and giving them bad reviews probably aren't that bright because I don't go out of my way to give bad reviews to books. I don't like Margaret Atwood. I don't like Toni Morrison. They're clearly amazing writers. Their writing's just not for me. Do you see me getting on Goodreads and giving Toni Morrison's beloved a one-star review? No, it doesn't deserve a one-star review. And speaking of writing, since we're on the topic, I have said multiple times on Twitter and probably on the podcast, that I don't want to write another book for a while. And I've noticed in some other people, aka Zev, on Twitter, have noticed that a lot of the people on writing Twitter aren't actually putting anything out. A lot of the people who are on writing Twitter don't even fucking write. But they're obsessed with these minute details like what color does your main character wear on Tuesdays if it's raining outside? What's their favorite ice cream flavor? I mean, I don't think about this shit. I've been writing most of my life. I started writing when I was in the second grade when I was eight years old. I was probably still seven years old actually, but I turned eight that year. I'm almost 30. I turned 30 in October. So, I've been writing for a long time. It doesn't make me great, but I do know a thing or two about writing, and I know that I've never given a shit about what my main character was thinking outside of the context of a fucking story. So, it's great if that works for them, if that's part of their process, but I don't read anyone who does that. And I'm pretty sure that any of my favorite writers, especially Bukowski, would probably poo-poo on those people too. 
And none of those people are listening to this podcast. And if you are, and I'm offending you, turn it off. Okay? I am not trying to gatekeep anything. People call me a gatekeeper because I said... I say people, like two people. Called me a gatekeeper for this, that, and the other on fucking Twitter. Who the fuck cares? I mean, my Twitter is my opinion. And I'm not saying that I have a right to opinion and you don't have a right to disagree, but people get offended by things that I post in my feed. I'm not replying to them and posting my opinion. I'm not disagreeing with anybody. I'm just posting my opinion out there. It's my fucking feed, and if you don't like it, you don't have to follow me. You don't have to read it. And that's the funny thing about the internet. People think that if someone posts an opinion, they're trying to change something. They're trying to make it a law. Which is so fucking stupid. Fucking grow up. God damn. It's bad when me, someone who considers himself practically a man-child, has to stand up and say, Grow the fuck up. Get over yourself. Jesus Christ. So, I have been turned off of a lot of writing because of the people on Twitter who are obsessed about talking about writing but don't seem to actually do anything about it. And we're about to read a prolific writer by the name of Percival Everett, who is amazing. And guess what he does with his spare time? He sits at a computer and he writes. So here's the issue with me reading this story off my computer. I have to... It's a whole thing, and I'm not going to complain about it right now. You don't care. This is called The Fix. Douglas Langley owned a little sandwich shop at the intersection of 14th and T Streets in the district. Beside his shop was a seldom-used alley, and above his shop lived a man by the name of Sherman Olney, whom Douglas had seen beaten to near extinction one night by a couple of silky-looking men who seemed to know Sherman and wanted wanted something in particular from him. Douglas had been drawn outside from cleaning up the storeroom by a rhythmic thumping sound, like someone dropping a telephone book onto a table over and over. He stepped out into the November chill and discovered that the sound was actually that of a larger man's fist finding again and again the belly of Sherman Olney, who was being kept on his feet by the second assailant. Douglas ran back inside and grabbed the pistol he kept in the roll-top desk in his business office. He returned to the scene with the powerful flashlight his son had given him and shone the light on the faces of the two villains. The men were not overly impressed by the light, the big one saying, Hey man, you better get that light out of my face. They did, however, show proper respect for the discharging of the thirty-two by running away. Sherman Olney crumbled to the ground, moaning and clutching at his middle, saying he didn't have it anymore. Are you all right? Douglas asked, realizing how stupid the question was before it was fully out. But Sherman's response was equally insipid as he said, Yes. Come, let's get you inside, Douglas helped the man to his feet and into the shop. He locked the glass door behind them, then took Sherman over to the counter and helped him onto a stool. Thanks, Sherman said. You want me to call the cops? Douglas asked. Sherman Olney shook his head. 
They're long gone by now. I'll make you a sandwich, Douglas said as he stepped behind the counter. Really, that's not necessary. You'll like it. I don't know first aid, but I can make a sandwich. Douglas made the man a pastrami and munster on rye sandwich and poured him a glass of barely cold milk, then took him to sit in one of the three booths in the shop. Douglas sat across the table from the man, watched him take a bite of the sandwich. Here we have this almost classic Everett setup where someone is in a bind and there's a casual way of getting them out of it. The conversation here is comedic in a sense. You want me to call the cops? They're long gone by now. I'll make you a sandwich. And Douglas is noticeably kind of the typical Alexi, I won't say an author avatar, but Alexi has a way of writing these men who are sort of everyday men. You know what I mean? And they make their little comments. They're very straightforward, but they know their limitations. And Douglas is that kind of guy. He doesn't know first aid, but he'll make you a sandwich. And, you know, he's the kind of guy that if you get beat up and he'll come and try to shoot someone away. But he's not necessarily someone who would want to shoot someone. I don't know why I'm detailing this. What did they want, Douglas put to him. They hurt me, Sherman said, his mouth working on the tough bread. He picked a seed from his teeth and put it on the plate. They wanted to hurt me. My name is Douglas Langley. Sherman Olney. What were they after, Sherman? Douglas asked. But he didn't get an answer. I've noticed that in Sherman's stuff. Can I call you Sherman, Mr. Alexi? There's a lot of people just not answering stuff. And my wife, if I, if I don't pick up on her vibe if, when she makes a statement, she may not ask me a question, but when she says something, she expects a response regardless of what she says. And my sort of self-defense when someone's yelling at me or getting upset with me is to just quiet down because I don't want to get upset back. I would rather be quiet and have them get more upset than us both get upset and me say something stupid. As they sat there, the quiet of the room was disturbed by the loud refrigerator motor kicking on. Douglas felt the vibration of it through the soles of his shoes. Your compressor's a little shot, Sherman said. Douglas looked at him, not knowing what he was talking about. Your fridge, your compressor's bad. Oh yeah, Douglas said. It's loud. I can fix it. Douglas just looked at him. You want me to fix it? Douglas didn't know what to say. Certainly he wanted the machine fixed, but what if this man just liked to take things apart? What if he made it worse? Douglas imagined the kitchen floor strewn with refrigerator parts, but he said, sure. With that, Sherman got up and walked back into the kitchen. Douglas on his heels. The skinny man removed the plate from the bottom of the big, embarrassingly old machine and looked around. Do you have any chewing gum? Sherman asked. As it turned out, Douglas had in his pocket the last stick of a pack of juicy fruit, which he promptly handed over. Sherman unwrapped the stick, folded it in his mouth, then lay there on the floor chewing. 
Why do you think he picks juicy fruit? Here's the thing about juicy fruit, people. Juicy fruit does not make your breath smell better. You chew juicy fruit because it tastes good. It's almost like a big stripe or whatever it is that children chew or big league chew or just chewing gum in general. It's not really an adult gum in a sense. You know, when I was growing up, my dad and my grandfather always had big red gum and I hated it. But now as an adult, I love big red gum and it makes me think of them. But juicy fruit just makes me think of my childhood, but not in the same way that big red does, if that makes sense. What are you doing? Douglas asked. Sherman paused him with a finger. Then as if the feeling of the texture of the gum with his tongue, he took it from his mouth and stuck it into the workings of the refrigerator. And just like that, the machine ran with a quiet, steady hum, just like when it was new. How'd you do that? Douglas asked. Sherman, now on his feet, shrugged. Thank you, this is terrific. All you used was chewing gum. Can you fix other things? Sherman nodded. What are you? Are you a repairman or an electrician? Douglas asked. I can fix things. Would you like another sandwich? Sherman shook his head again and said, I should be going. Thank you for the food and all your help. Those men might be waiting for you, Douglas said. He suddenly remembered his pistol. He could feel the weight of it in his pocket, just sitting here a while. Douglas felt a good deal of sympathy for the underfed man who had just repaired his refrigerator. Where do you live? I could drive you. Actually, I don't have a place to live. Sherman stared at the floor. Come over here, Douglas led the man to a big metal sink across the kitchen. He turned the ancient lever and the pipe started with a thin whistle and then screeched as the water came out. Tell me, can you fix that? Do you want me to? Yes, Douglas turned off the water. Do you have a wrench? Douglas stepped away into his business office where he dug his way through a pile of sweaters and newspapers until he found a 12-inch crescent wrench and a pipe wrench. He took them back to Sherman. Will these do? Why does this man have a pile of sweaters and newspapers in his office? I can kind of understand the newspapers, but a a pile of sweaters? You're getting this back and forth between the two of them. And Sherman has this air of mystery to him. And as we go through the story, you'll see he has almost like a savior-like quality, like he's Jesus or something. And Douglas is just trying to look out for him. But the thing about humanity is most people are not like Douglas. Sherman took the wrench and got down under the sink. Douglas bent low to try and see what the man was doing. But before he could figure out anything out, Sherman was getting up. My wife is in the other room doing a phone interview and you would think that she didn't have an indoor voice. There you go, Sherman said. Incredulous, Douglas reached over to the faucet and turned on the water. The water came out smoothly and quietly. He turned it off, then tried it again. You did it. It's nothing. An easy repair. You know, I can really use someone like you around here, Douglas said. Do you need a job? I mean, do you want a job? 
I can't pay much, just minimum wage, but I can let you stay in the apartment upstairs. Actually, it's just a room. Are you interested? You don't even know me, Sherman said. Douglas stopped. Of course, the man was right. He didn't know anything about him, but he had a strong feeling that Sherman Olney was an honest man. An honest man who could fix things. You're right, Douglas admitted. But I'm a good judge of character. I don't know. You said you didn't have a place to go. You can live here and work until you find another place or another job. Douglas was unsure why he was pleading so with the stranger and, in fact, had a terribly uneasy feeling about the whole business, but for some reason, he really wanted him to stay. Okay. Douglas took the man up the back stairs and showed him the little room. The single bulb hung from a cord in the middle of the ceiling, and its dim light revealed the single bed made up with a yellow chenille spread. Douglas had taken many naps there. This is it, Douglas said. It's perfect. Sherman stepped fully into the room and looked around. The bathroom's down the hall. There's a narrow shower stall in there. I'm sure I'll be comfortable. There's food downstairs. Up yourself. Thank you. Douglas stood in awkward silence for a while, wondering what else there was to say. Then he said, well, I guess I should go on home to my wife. And I should get some sleep. Douglas nodded and left the shop. My wife works in housing. And the thing about it is when she first started in a very lowly position back in 2019, her manager hired a maintenance man. And all apartment complexes need maintenance men. This was something that I didn't really realize, but they can make uh, quite a bit of money, actually. And this position was offering not only 40 k a year, but also, he was the manager was letting this new maintenance man have half of an apartment for student housing, so two rooms for he and his girlfriend. And they were in an empty apartment because two of the rooms needed repair work, and part of the deal was this guy would help repair and fix up these two rooms in order to live in the other two rooms. And he never signed a lease. So... After hiring this man, giving him a place to live, the maintenance man does a no-call, no-show on his second week, and of course he's fired, and the manager goes to tell this man, hey, you didn't sign a lease, so uh, you need to vacate the premises. I'm going to serve you with an eviction notice if you do not, and of course... The manager really didn't go about it the most legal way, but he moved the guy's stuff outside and changed the locks. Uh, That didn't deter the maintenance man, of course, who knew how to pick locks, and he spent another night there where the police showed up the next day, and it was revealed that they were staying there without having signed a lease, and they were thought to be uh, danger and Uh, It was assumed that this maintenance man had drugs on him as well. So he didn't really have much of an issue just running away because he didn't want the cops to show up again. Suffice it to say, maintenance men are an important part 
of our society that we neglect to appreciate. Two weeks later, Sherman had said nothing more about himself, responding only to trivial questions put to him. He didn't, however, repair or make better every machine in the restaurant. He had fixed the toaster oven, the gas lines, the big griddle, the dishwasher, the phone, the neon open sign, the electric eye buzzer on the front door, the meat slicer, the coffee machine, the manual mustard dispenser, and the cash register. It seems like this store was in a great deal of disrepair. Douglas found the man's skills invaluable and wondered how he'd ever managed without him. Still, his presence was disconcerting as he never spoke of his past or family or friends, and he never went out, not even to the store, his food already being there. And so Douglas began to worry that he might have a fugitive from the law. It's almost like Sherman is uh, the man with no name from the Sergio Leone film franchise. The fact of the matter was finally that Sherman hadn't stolen anything. It hadn't come across in any way threatening, and so Douglas kept his fears and suspicions in check and counted his savings. No more electricians. No more plumbers. No more repairmen of any kind. Sherman's handiwork did not remain a secret in spite of Douglas's best efforts. It began when Sherman offered and then repaired a small, radio-controlled automobile owned by a fat boy. Why on earth is this boy reduced to his size, people? Anyway, the fat boy who wore his hair in braids came into the shop with two of his skinny friends. They sat at the bar and ordered a large soda to split. This thing is a piece of crap, the fat boy said. His name is Loomis Rump. I told you not to spend your money on that thing, one of the skinny kids said. Shut up, Loomis said. Timmy's right, Loomis, the third boy said. He sucked the last of the soda through the straw. That's a cheap one. The good remote controls aren't made of that thin plastic. What do you know, Loomis said. Loomis pushed his toy another few inches away from him across the counter toward Sherman. Sherman looked at it, then picked it up. Douglas was watching from the register. He observed as Sherman held the car up to the light and seemed to smile. Just stop working, huh? Sherman asked the boys. It's a piece of crap, Loomis said. Would you like me to fix it? Sherman asked. Douglas stepped closer, thinking this time he might see how the repair was done. Loomis handed the remote to Sherman. Douglas stared intently on the man's hands. Sherman took out his pocket knife and used the small blade to undo the Phillips head screws in order to remove the back panel from the remote control. Then it was all a blur. Douglas saw nothing and then Sherman was replacing the panel. This is kind of a common trend in Alexi's work. There's someone who knows how to do something or they have some sort of knowledge. It's almost as if Sherman Alexi does a massive amount of research for every character that he writes. In Telephone, he writes from not a English, pers- uh, English professor's perspective, that's a sentence, but from a geology professor's perspective. And he knows all these different things, and there are these little passages about rocks and all that other bullshit. And I wonder 
why did Percival Everett spend all this time putting in this much this much research, not to mention the effort it made to integrate this into a character who is... I don't want to assume that every protagonist in one of his books is based on him, but they're all kind of similar in a sense. So I imagine that there is a little bit of Percival Everett in all of his, his protagonists. By the way, if you haven't had the opportunity, go listen to Percival Everett read or speak on YouTube. He's very interesting, and he tells a story very well. Loomis Rump laughed. You didn't even do nothing, he said. Anything, Sherman corrected him. Loomis put the car on the floor and switched on the remote. The car rolled away, nearly tripping a postal worker, and crashed to a stop at the door. It capsized, but its wheels kept spinning. Hey, hey, the skinny boy shouted. Thanks, mister, Loomis said. The boys left. Fat Loomis Rump and his skinny pals told their friends, and they brought in their broken toys. Sherman fixed them. The fat boy's friends told their parents, and Douglas found his shop increasingly crowded with customers and their small appliances. The rump boy told me that you fixed his toy car, and the Johnson woman told me that you repaired a radio, the short man who wore the waterworks uniform said. Sherman was wiping down the counter. Is that true? Sherman nodded. Well, you see these cuts on my face? Sherman could see the cuts under the man's three-day growth of stubble from the door to the kitchen. Sherman leaned forward and studied the wounds. They seem to be healing nicely, Sherman said. It's this damn razor, the man said, and he pulled the small unit from his trousers pocket. It cuts me every time I try to shave. You want me to fix your razor? If you wouldn't mind, but I don't have any money. That's okay. Sherman took the razor and began taking it apart. Douglas has always moved closer and tried to see. He smiled at the waterworks man who smiled back. Other people gathered around and watched Sherman's hands. Then they watched him hand the reassembled little machine back to the waterworks man. The man turned on the shaver and put it to his face. Hey, this is wonderful. It works just like it when it was new. Thank you. Can I bring you some money tomorrow? Not necessary. This is wonderful. Everyone in the restaurant oohed and awed. Look, the waterworks man said. I'm not bleeding. That almost has like a Bukowski feel to it. He has some short stories that are obviously very fiction. Like there's a story about a man being shrunken by a woman and then placed into her vagina. But beyond that, we have some foreshadowing here when Sherman looks at the man's face and he's looking at his wounds and he says they seem to be healing nicely. And if you haven't read this before, you will find out soon why he was looking at the man's face, at his wounds, and noting how they were healing. Sherman sat quietly at the end of the counter and fixed whatever was put in front of him. He repaired hair dryers and calculators and watches and cell phones and carburetors. And while people waited for the repairs, they ate sandwiches. And this appealed to Sherman, though he didn't like his handyman's time so consumed. But the fact of the matter was that there was little more to fix in the shop. Did I just read a typo? 
And this appealed to Sherman. Shouldn't it be this appears appeals to Douglas? You know, I actually took a picture of a a typo that I found in photograph. No, telephones. I keep calling it photograph. But it's interesting because Percival Everett's a professional writer. He has professional editors, assumedly. He is well-respected, renowned, whatever. And occasionally I will find mistakes in his writing. It doesn't bother me, but it's funny to me because people have DM'd me about mistakes in my writing, and I wish they would try doing that to Stephen King sometime. One day, a woman who believed her husband was having an affair came in and complained over a turkey and provolone on wheat. I'm going to take a sip of ginger ale. Sherman sat next to her at the counter and listened as she finished. And then he comes home hours after he's gotten off work, smelling a beer and perfume, and he doesn't want to talk or anything, and says he has a sinus headache, and I'm wondering if I had to follow him or check the mileage on his car before he leaves in the morning. What should I do? Tell him it's his turn to cook and that you'll be late and don't tell him what you're, where you're going. Everyone in the shop nodded more and shared confusion than an agreement. Where should I go, the woman asked. Go to the library and read about the praying mantis. Okay, why does he tell her to read about the praying mantis? Praying mantis eat their mates. Female praying mantis eat their male mates. Douglas came up to Sherman after the woman had left and asked, Do you think that was a good idea? Sherman shrugged. The woman came in the next week, her face full with a smile, and announced that her home life was now perfect. Everything at home is perfect now, thanks to Sherman. Customers slapped Sherman on the back. So began a new dimension of fixing in the shop as people came in along with their electric pencil sharpeners, pacemakers, and microwaves, their relationship woes, and their tax problems. Sherman saved the man who owned the automobile supply business across the street $12,000 and got him some $57 in refund. What? Got him some $57 in refund? That doesn't make any sense to me. One night after the shop was closed, Douglas and Sherman sat at the counter and ate the stale leftover donuts and drank coffee. Douglas looked at his handyman and shook his head. That really was something, the way you straightened the Reinhardt boy's teeth. Physics, Sherman said. I need this man to come help me. My back... Okay, so I got the first COVID vaccine on Monday, last Monday. And the only side effects that I've noticed is that my teeth were very sensitive for a few days. I didn't have any like fever or anything, but I've been, I've said this before. I have back problems now because I sit like a child hunched over. So my lower back is in pain. It's in pain right now as I speak, and I've been trying to straighten it out. Sleeping on my back doesn't help. I always sleep on my stomach anyway, but essentially, for those of you who are interested, and if you're not, I don't give a shit. It's my podcast. I am having to 
it, it, it's undone all of the progress I made with my back because I've been working on it for like over a month and it, it's back to where not only do I have pain in my back, I have pain down in my prostate area. So the COVID vaccine may keep me from getting sick in the future, but right now it is fucking up my joints. As per my custom, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Hopefully I won't screw anything up as I read this time. The next day, Sherman fixed a chainsaw and a laptop computer and 32 parking tickets. Sherman, who had always been quiet, became increasingly more so. He would listen, nod, and fix the problem. That evening, a few minutes before closing, just after Sherman had solved the Murata woman's sexual identity problem, two paramedics came in with a patient on a stretcher. Now, the way I'm about to read this is not going to be dramatic, so don't be disappointed, people. This is my wife, the more distressed of the ambulance men said of the supine woman. She's been hit by a car, and she died in our rig on the way to the hospital, he cried. Sherman looked at the woman, pulling back the blanket. She had massive internal. Sherman stopped the man with a raised hand, pulled the blanket off, and then threw it over himself and the woman. Douglas stepped over to stand with the paramedics. Sherman worked under the blanket, moving his way, and then he and the woman emerged alive and well. The paramedic hugged her. You're alive, the man said to his wife. The other paramedic shook Sherman's hand. Douglas just stared at his handyman. Thank you. Thank you, the husband said, crying. Now, I've just read this very dramatic scene. The way that Percival Everett wrote it, I'm not taking out any emotion or anything. We're getting a very straightforward description of this. There's no high drama. Because the thing is, for one thing, you know what's going to happen when you read this. He's going to fix the woman. Why would Percival Everett write a short story about a man who can fix things and then someone brings him a dead woman and nothing? We know what's going to happen. But a lot of writers would take this and they would write a long paragraph describing emotions and bullshit like that, but not Everett. Everett gives us the straight scoop. It's as if we're a fly on the wall, but we're unable to detect emotion, in a sense. And Bukowski does this, too. A lot of times he will convey scenes of great importance and emotion, very straightforward and without a lot of the spice that other writers would want to use. Instead, they use their spice for other aspects of their story. Sherman nodded and walked quietly away, disappearing into the kitchen. The paramedics and the restored woman left. Douglas locked the shop and walked into the kitchen where he found Sherman sitting on the floor with his back against the refrigerator. I don't know what to say, Douglas said. His head was swimming. You just brought that woman back to life. Sherman's face looked lifeless. He seemed drained of all energy. He lifted his sad face up to look at Douglas. How did you do that? Douglas asked. Sherman shrugged. You just brought a woman back to life and you give me a shrug? Douglas could hear the fear in his voice. Who are you? What are you? 
Are you from outer space or something? No, Sherman said. Then what's going on? I can fix things. That wasn't a thing, Douglas pointed out. That was a human being. I know. Douglas ran a hand over his face and just stared at Sherman. I wonder what Sheila will say. Please don't tell anyone about this, Sherman said. Douglas snorted out a laugh. Don't tell anyone. I don't have to tell anyone. Everyone probably knows by now. What do you think those paramedics are doing out there right now? They're telling anybody and everybody there's a freaking language sandwich shop who can revive the dead. Sherman held his face in his hands. Who are you? That is where we get the emotion. Not from the woman being revived, but the aftermath. That is what makes Percival Everett a brilliant writer. So, as you can imagine, Douglas is right. So let's get into this. News spread, television news trucks and teams camped outside the front door of the sandwich shop. They were waiting with cameras ready when Douglas showed up to the op- to open for business the day following the resurrection. I tend to screw up words more when my mouth is dry, so I'm going to drink some more ginger ale. Yes, this is my shop, he said. No, I don't know how it was done. No, you can't come in just yet. Sherman was sitting at the counter waiting, his face long, his eyes red as if from crying. This is crazy, Douglas said. Sherman nodded. They want to talk to you, Douglas looked closely at Sherman. Are you all right? But Sherman was looking past Douglas and through the front window where the crowd was growing ever larger. Are you going to talk to them? Douglas asked. Sherman shook his sad face. I, I have to run away, he said. Everyone knows where I am now. Douglas at first thought Sherman was making cryptic reference to the men who had been beating him the night long ago and then realized Sherman simply meant everyone. Sherman stood and walked into the back of the shop. Douglas followed him, not knowing why, unable to stop himself. He followed the man out of the store and down the alley away from the shop and the horde of people. Sherman watched the change come over Douglas and said, Of course not. But you, the rest of Douglas's sentence, didn't have a chance to find air as he once again repeated Sherman's steps. They ran up this street and across the avenue, crossed bridges and scurried through tunnels, and no matter how far away from the shop they seemed to get, the chanting remained, however faint. Douglas finally asked, where they were going and confessed he was afraid. They were sitting on a bench in a park, and by now it was just after sundown. You don't have to come with me, Sherman said. I only need to get away from all of them. He shook his head and said more to himself. I knew this would happen. If you knew this would happen, why did you fix all those things? Because I can. Because I was asked. Douglas gave nervous glances this way and that across the park. This has something to do with why the men were beating you that night, doesn't it? They were from the government or some businesses. I'm not completely sure, 
Sherman said. They wanted me to fix a bunch of things, and I said no. But they asked you, Sherman said. You just told me. You have to be careful about what you fix. If you fix the valves in an engine, but the bearings are shot, you'll get more compression, but the engine will still burn up. Sherman looked at Douglas's puzzled face. If you irrigate a desert, you might empty a sea. It's a complicated business fixing things, Douglas said. So what do we do now? Sherman was now weeping, tears streaming down his face and curving under his chin before falling to the open collar of his light blue shirt. Douglas watched him, not believing that he was seeing the same man who had fixed so many machines and so many relationships and so many businesses and concerned, and even fixed a dead woman. Sherman raised his tear-filled eyes to Douglas. I am the empty sea, he said. There's our beautiful writing. This is the darling that Percival Everett couldn't bring himself to kill. You know, in creative writing classes, they tell you to, to nix anything that sounds smart, essentially, because it'll stand out. But, uh, you know, if you irrigate a desert, you might empty a sea, and then I am the empty sea. Well, that's beautiful. I don't think you should always edit things out like that. The chanting became louder, and Douglas turned to see the night dotted with yellow-orange torches. Is he Frankenstein? The quality of the chanting had become strained, and there was an urgency in the intonation that did not sound affable. The two men ran, Douglas pursing, pushing Sherman, as he was now so engaged in sobbing that he had trouble keeping on his feet. They made it to the big bridge that crossed the bay and stopped in the middle, discovering that at the other end thousands of people waited. They sang their dirge into the dark sky, their flames winging. Fix us, they shouted. Fix us, fix us. Sherman looked down at the peaceful water below. It was a long jump that no one could hope to survive. He looked at Douglas. Douglas nodded. The masses of people pressed in from either side. Sherman stepped over the railing, stood on the brink, the toes of his shoes pushed well over the edge. Don't, they all screamed. Fix us. Fix us. See, if anyone else had written that kind of story, it wouldn't have come out the same way. Maybe Bukowski, but Bukowski wouldn't write something about like a, a savior character. You know, he was always writing about the down and out. And I'm sure that Everett is so pleased that I'm comparing him to Bukowski, but, and I'm sure everyone in the audience is tired of me talking about Bukowski, but this is my podcast. But Everett could write uh, a story about a man with superpowers and he could make it relatable. He could make it poetic. He could make it, Plain as day, straightforward. You know, people talk about writers like Hemingway getting to the point, writing in short sentences, blah, blah, blah. But Everett, he takes it home. And he's not looking to make a grand slam. 
He's not swinging his his bat in this dramatic fashion, yet he hits the ball every time. And that is the difference between Everett and every other writer on the planet. This is why Everett is brilliant. He actually makes grand slams without trying to. I know that I probably didn't spend as much time dissecting this as many of you would have liked, but I wanted to give you a good experience, an entertaining podcast. And I hope that you enjoyed it. So, this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. Happy reading.